Hello and welcome to episode 517 of Moralia Python Radio, Herp History. And in this episode, we are joined by the one and only Tom Crutchfield. We also have Keith McPeak hanging out with us. We talk about the history of the reptile hobby as Tom sees it and how he has evolved in both his keeping and his understanding of reptiles over the years. So let's get into it. Welcome to Morelia Python Race. Welcome to another episode of Morelia Python Radio. This is Kirk History. We're talking to uh, Mr. Tom Crushfield, a man that needs no introduction in the world of reptiles. If he does, you haven't been in it long enough and you're not been paying attention. So I think we'll jump right in because there's no point in kind of messing around with Tom. Welcome to NPR. And we wanted to start with how you got started into reptiles. Like, can you kind of just give us a brief overview of that? Um, first of all, I'd like to thank you for inviting me. It's, uh, it's sure. wonderful to be here. <clears throat> and second of all, I can't remember really not loving reptiles. My earliest memories from home, I was born in Mariana, Florida, North Florida in 1949. Okay. At that time, the attitudes towards reptiles were, for instance, there were no pet reptiles in the U.S. much except for fairs and snake shows and Zoos, roadside attractions. Nobody kept snakes because mm-hmm. everyone hated snakes. So immediately, while I was very young, I was very attracted to dinosaurs. And then after the closest thing to a dinosaur, a crocodilian, said, man, I had alligators living near me. So I love them. And then Woolworth's dime store used to sell baby caiman <laughs> and little baby Amazon river turtles, put Agnemius uh, expansa and put Agnemius uh, you know, Phyllis, mostly, and they paint the shells. She almost never saw native turtles, and they all were from mostly Peru and Brazil. Mm-hmm. So, but what really changed my life was when I was five or six years old and turned over that rock in my yard and found a ring next snake. And I thought that was absolutely the most beautiful snake I'd ever seen. I could see the sun hit part of its coils. And it had that sheen and that little ring around the neck. Mm-hmm. It flipped its tail up. And I didn't have any idea what it was doing, but I didn't feel like it was dangerous at all, even though I was very young. So I went in and got a jar, took a stick and put it in the jar. And, of course, my grandmother saw it, went crazy, killed the snake. And, uh, it, but, but it never stopped. And, and I wound up with them letting me even keep venomous snakes starting at age 16. I caught my first venomous snake at 12. I met behind the net. Mm-hmm. Diamondback. I, my mother brought home two alligators that someone, she was a waitress at the bus station, <clears throat> brought in two baby alligators where they killed the mother. And uh, I had been buying caiman and every winter they would drown because the water got cold. I'm probably mm-hmm. nine or ten. Man. And when I had those two baby alligators and I made them a nice enclosure outside, they didn't die. And I kept those until actually I left home at 18 years old and they went to Ross Allen's and they were seven well, the male was nine feet long, two females were seven or eight. Wow. I had an entire young life in my backyard in big and terrible handmade ponds with ten fences that <laughs> we all built for. And turtles, too. I had alligator sapper as long as I had them, but I caught myself a big one. 
So was it more of like, I, I, I mean, we're trying to like plug in what it was like back then versus what it is now. Was it more of DIY, you catch the animal and then you have to build everything and do all the provisions and providing yourself? There were no cages. Yeah. None. Until Ross mm-hmm. Allen made these and Wilfred T. Neal designed these little simple sliding front cages so the glass slides front on little grooves instead of slant like a an old vivarium looking thing. Yeah. With, with with that particle board on the back with holes in it for ventilation. Mm-hmm. And ten bucks. And then they were selling them around, but but those were terrible. You couldn't keep anything bigger in it than a ring that snake much, but Right. People did otherwise, just like they do today. So <laughs> beyond what is recommended. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah probably. Are very, really below what is recommended. Right. Yeah. <laughs> do not, please don't do this. And, and they do it. Yeah. A two foot by 18 inch cage. It's mm. by 18 inches tall. It's pretty tough. It's kind of like putting a retic in a vision cage. And, and that it's happens all the time. <laughs> like, but yeah. Yep. It's considered normal and it shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, um, no so back then, you you kind of start keeping the reptiles, and and I know that right now, uh, obviously, the stigma for reptile keeping has shifted, but we still get told that we're absolute crazy people for having snakes. Back then, when it was really not common, were you not just like the, the town loco <laughs> kind of a guy? Like you know, like I know I was like I was the crazy uh, guy that later on changed into a lot of respect with my schoolmates. Mm. There's a lot of them. I taught them about reptiles. And, and believe it or not, I'm still friends with a lot of them today. I mean, Stacy and I and Mindy just took a road trip to my 55th high school graduation. And one of my buddies uh, uh, gave me his RB&B on Merritt's Mill Pond on the first magnitude spring, like Silver Springs. Mm-hmm. Like you go to uh-huh. a vacation. But imagine that private. And, uh, oh, wow. and they all love reptiles now. But back then, they didn't. But as I grew up in school and they saw me with snakes, well, what really changed everybody in Mariana, a lot of people in Mariana like snakes better than other places, but the older people, because in high school in the 1960s, I graduated in 67, about, there were no summer jobs, basically. Mm-hmm. There, just, there was no tourists where we were, so it was all agriculture. So you either had to work in the tobacco barns or load watermelons usually for 50 cents an hour. Think about that. <laughs> all the time you want. That's four dollars a day. That's twenty dollars a week. And in the tobacco barns, you're three stories off the ground, straddling beams with dried tobacco leaves. It's 120 degrees, and you can only be the guys on the top for 30 minutes because you might pass out and fall and get killed. And as kids, we all of us kids, 16 more, we got on buses, and that's what we did. But Snakeatorium, I knew sold snakes, and they paid 25 cents to put for cotton miles. Dollar foot for Eastern Diamondback rattlesnakes, <clears throat> fifty cents a foot for corn snakes and gray rat snakes, and uh, fifty cents each for uh, medium water snakes, and seventy-five cents for great big water snakes. Well, in the dry season, I could go out when everything's drying up in April and May and June and catch a hundred cotton miles any night I want to go out. It averaged two to maybe three feet long, which is about a dollar, a dollar fifty. Mm-hmm. Which means I bring in like six or seven hundred dollars a week and live in like high man. I didn't have a car, I had no money, but my buddies had cars and they were happy as shit. <laughs> <laughs> that car 
take out, take out, pull my bags, and do ever what I wanted them to do. They put it on desk. <laughs> well, yeah, it was either that or pass yeah. out at 130 degrees. <laughs> then only that, not only that, at six, seventeen, or eighteen, we then got to make a trip to Panama City every weekend and so, mm. which we got cash. Okay. And then we could buy alcohol, and my county was a dry county, and so we did. And so we had, you know, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, and in high school, they called me Gator because we were out on McCormick's Mill Pond. I don't know. I'd watch Ross Allen catch alligators underwater. And I never had, and I had alligators anyway at that point. I had raised up. So I, I've never been afraid of anything. I never really been hurt by anything either much. And so there was this eight or nine foot alligator. We shot its eyes and they were real wary in those days, scared because people still hunted them. And it sunk to the bottom, and I dove in. Just I didn't even say anything. Just dove in and swam down. Got it by the jaw. Wrapped my legs around it. A good swimmer can hold their breath a lot longer than a crocodilian. If the crocs scared, like when you fighting him, mm-hmm. real dangerous. Is a good swimmer. Like I, I could have held my breath in at least four to five minutes minimum. Okay. And, and, and sitting on the back of the alligator with the alligator doing work, I can hold it probably longer than that because I'm not working mm-hmm. with the gator. And the gator is capable of tremendous. Uh, anaerobic capabilities, but it has no aerobic abilities at all. None of the reptiles do to store blood and keep, keep going a long time. They mm-hmm. can't do that very quick so you can drown. So I just caught him, wrapped my legs around him. When he got tired, swam him up, uh, electrical tape his dog and put him in the boat. And then we, we just turned it loose, but it was just a joke. So then they called me Peter and I, the rest of the time. Hey, that was my name. What? There are worse nicknames out there. I mean, I think oh. that's a good one. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, I think they didn't want that. They were afraid I throw alligator on them or something. I mean, most a lot of people still were scared to death of snakes. Mm-hmm. But he, even there was one guy who used to give me snake on. He was freaking terrified of snakes. But man, he wanted that alcohol and go to Panama City. And if I couldn't get anybody <laughs> else, he wanted any good. If I had to have him cold cotton mouth bags and stuff because he'd bump them against himself. He wanted. He didn't sleep very good like a lot of the others that took me, you know, and so uh, I had to be careful with him a little bit. Couldn't let him go all the time. But, but man, he wanted to go so bad. Even scared. But everybody up there hated them. And, the, and really what I was told by everybody up there other than one science teacher that had a great deal of influence on me called Miss Cox uh, yeah, said that you, you should do something else because learning a lot about reptiles like you do you're never going to make anything out of yourself, son, doing that. That's what they told me. It was nice of them, but... Um, that's how it's going to begin, you know. Yep. Nutshell. So, uh, mentors. I, I mean, you you mentioned um, uh, a couple of people. Did, did you have any real mentors that really kind of took you under their wing and kind of walked you through reptiles in the beginning? Not per se. There were many of them, you know. Uh I never really felt like, <clears throat> and even today, I, I've never been one. I've always been a, a little bit different than any of the other herpetoculturists. I'm not like the zoo guys. I'm not an academic, although I've dabbled in all those things. I have friends in all those disciplines. It's just not me, you know, mm-hmm. at all. I've always kind of just done my own, kind of my own thing, I guess is the best way to put it, in my own realm. And but the understanding of reptiles has I I've learned so much from them they taught me. Because I have and still walk the walk rather than just think about stuff I did a long time ago. Because that doesn't matter. 
what matters, especially when you get older, is living in the now, mm-hmm. which is only right now. You tomorrow and yesterday's gone. And enjoying it, and, and I enjoy doing this, so I'm not going to stop until I die. If I can jump in, one thing that Tom's pointing out that I think is very important to, to new people to the hobby is is a guy like Tom grew up in an area that was reptile abundant. So mm-hmm. his first interactions were animals that he could see in the wild, I'm gathering, and learn from yeah. them and how they lived in the wild. And then think about once you get that under your belt, how much easier it is to apply that to exotic animals as they're coming in. Because now you have an understanding of the animals in your area and what they're doing, where I think a lot of kids today, they get into it and they just see this rare steak on the Internet and they buy it and they don't have that natural understanding that Tom had growing up seeing the animals in the wild, you know? Yeah. And you were asking, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you're good. Okay, you were asking about mentors and we got, mm-hmm. I got sidetracked. But really, they were a lot of the early herpetologists, but not one of them had a single huge effect on my life, like you asked. Right. Denny Seaport was a really good friend of mine and, uh, I, uh, that's who I sold the snakes to when I was in high school. Later on, I worked for him and, and David Grove, the esteemed, uh, uh, general curator emeritus at the Oklahoma City Zoo and the curator of reptiles there that did so much for so long. He got his start working in Snakeatorium too. So okay. I just, when this morning, we're still close today. Uh, Ross Allen. Yep. I worked for Ross Allen some too. And I knew Ross Allen at, uh, as he aged later in life uh, pretty well. Uh, Bill Host, I knew, uh, I, I wouldn't call him a mentor, but I definitely learned more, more about handling cobras by watching him handle them than from anyone else mm-hmm. uh, to the point that I can handle cobras at 19 or 20 years old. I mean, when I handle, I mean, handle cobras, hold a, a full hoodie cobra in each hand without worrying about getting bit. I mean, they may try to bite, but they're not going to be able to. Yeah. And I've never, I've never been bit today even still. That's that's cool. I mean, it's uh, to have that confidence. I I, I would not. <laughs> so, bravery and confidence. Yeah. Understand. Yeah. It's very hard. It's very hard to be afraid of that which you understand. And when that culprit spreads that hood and gives out that kiss, the average horticulturist puts his tail between his legs and starts. Who cares? It's it's really all bluff. And if you understand the behavior, you can just put one hand like that. Reach in with the other hand, pick the cover up, and you put it in your hand. And it's, and it's focused on that hand, so unless it's in shed, you're never going to get that because it's a it's an eye focus. Right. You see, most people don't learn about reptiles, uh, ethology to the uh, ability that, that we do here. I mean, virtually all of our reptiles here are not only like if you walk up to my cages. Mm. Five tree monitors and all we breed and, and, and there's only, I think, three out there that were kept that we did here. But all of them run up to the wire to see you when you walk out there. If you open the door, they'll jump out on your shoulder. So with our crop monitors, they'll immediately come out and Bill won't even come out of the door unless we give him permission. And he likes to walk around the yard. He's eight and a half feet long. Uh, wow. and the snakes don't try to bite us or defend because we don't scare them. Never scare them. If they don't want to do something, we don't make them do it. We manipulate them into doing what we're doing without mm-hmm. fighting them. There's no point in it. The, the time for fighting reptiles is over to us. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I, 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 from watching some of your videos, Tom, and seeing it online, Keith has the same thing. Our friend Rob Stone, it's kind of the same thing. You guys have this, I don't know, it's like this Zen ability to know what that animal is going to do. Like, where did, where did you learn that? How did you learn that? Is that just, you knew, you just knew it? Is it from watching the snakes in the wild all the time or just spending time with them? Well, really what, what, like he said before, I spent literally 15 of my early, tw- no, more than that, because I started to seem like a swim, like in my, I wasn't even a teen yet. I spent 30 years looking at wild reptiles in North Florida in all times of the year, underwater, on top of the water, and I watched behaviors. Mm-hmm. And... What I try to do when I see a behavior a reptile does is why is it doing what it's doing? What causes it to do that if it's something I haven't seen before? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, uh, and so you have to question everything you know. And the minute that you think, if you know a lot about it, something happens and it teaches me that I don't know much about it at all. Uh, mm-hmm. yet I have spent literally over 65 years of my life trying to learn. And the more I learn, the less I realize I really know. Mm-hmm. So it's basically by watching. But also, once you understand, like once you live with stuff like that, and especially, and also too, you can have, let's talk about main chain vipers and crop monitors. We have mm-hmm. five crop monitors here. We have five main chain vipers here. No two of them have the same personality, even treated the same. They don't. Yeah. Eight or ten rhino iguanas here. None of them are exactly the same. Females, actually, on the Sakura are always a little bit of a bitch compared to males. <laughs> Not by me. So they don't want ours are in the yard free, so when you walk up to them, they'll try to hit you with your tail. Oh, you know, well. <laughs> be near. He does it with the chickens or anything that bothers her, she runs off. Whereas a male, we're just happy to see him when you pet it usually. But they're all different, so you have to treat them all different. But basically... What I do is their behavior, when I look at them, dictates how I handle or interact or deal with them, if that makes sense. Because, how, because how I deal with them or handle them dictates how they're going to act toward me. Mm-hmm. One thing I don't want is a big crocodile monitor or a big venomous snake here or the king cobra to decide that I'm a threat and try to kill me. I don't want that. Mm-hmm. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all user-friendly, and I'm happy. They don't bite me, and I don't bite them, and we don't fight each other. Each other, and that's all, that's all that matters, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Very cool. Um, and it works well for us. I mean, and we have tame lizards here that, but, but we keep them in a huge outdoor door. I mean, just their pool is 12 by 15 feet uh Two and a half feet deep in the cage is 24 by 15. But if you open the door of them and call them, they'll come running out of the door as soon as they hear you. When, wherever you are and, and run up to my grandson and then try to climb up and ride around on your shoulder in, hmm. in the yard. Let some of the tree monitors do that, crop monitors. We let, we let Bill just walk around the yard. All of them are so much more intelligent than we give them credit for. All of them are sentient beings. All of them understand. They all have feelings. They all have emotions. They're just not demonstrated to the point that we can understand. 
For instance, we rate animals according to how we feel about them in terms of their care by how much they remind us of us. For instance, mm-hmm. everyone will treat a pet monkey better than a pet cat. A pet cat is going to get treated every time better than a pet uh, parakeet. A mm-hmm. parakeet going to get treated every time better than a pet iguana. A pet iguana is going to get treated every time better than a, than a pet goldfish. And not saying that those animals are not sentient beings. I'm telling you that that's the mindset of human beings. Mm-hmm. So my whole purpose in life, especially in my latter years like this, is to change the perception of what our, the kind of animals reptiles are. Because if we think of reptiles more like sentient beings, like cats and dogs, even I'd take even parrots, certainly they'll get better treatment than just buying a water because it's cheap or, you know, young and stupid and want to buy a, a crop monitor, which is one of the worst things any herpetoculture should ever have without yeah. understanding and a huge enclosure, not only from the safety standpoint of the keeper, but really for the poor animal that suffers. I think in those instances, the animal tends to suffer more. Yeah. I mean, we, we've all seen it where people are buying iguanas or uh, crocodilians or monitors, mm-hmm. not fully all understanding what that entails. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Eric yeah. and I are in Pennsylvania, so we see yeah, we see it all the time, all kinds of things. <laughs> oh. And I'm, you know, and I used to be called out to. Uh, we used to call it Gator season when everybody would be calling because all their kid went into the show and bought themselves a baby alligator, and then it wouldn't fit in the bathtub anymore. I used to have to go and retrieve them for the zoo I worked for. So That's just, oh, let me just tell you something. We should yep. put this on the oh, anyway for the general public. First of all, and I'm guessing that y'all know, but you might not. A crocodilian. It's not like any other reptile. Science, even friends of mine, I get with sometimes we argue about whether a crocodilian should be a reptile or somewhere between birds and reptiles because a very primitive animal called an archosaur, way back in the days of the dinosaurs, a common ancestor for two kinds of animals, mm-hmm. crocodilians and birds. Mm-hmm. A crocodilian is a, physiologically, is a bird without feathers. That's it is intelligent <laughs> as a corvid bird or an African gray parrot, easy. It lives mm-hmm. as a human being. It has very strong emotions about its keeper to the point you can have giant saltwater crocodiles and stuff, and if it's one that you, uh, uh, interact with all the time. You can go on the water. It never hurts you. I mean, they, in the Indonesia, there are so many like that. And in our croc farm, it was like that too. I go in with the big giant Nile crocs. The big average, when we had to fix the, the, the dens that caved in, that carry pole, all they ever did swore out, look at me. That's the same giant ones that Caterland right now. Those were my crocs. I had them oh, on okay. train. Oh, okay. They, 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 the, so when you buy this baby alligator, like in this gator season, Let's talk about mm-hmm. that. Here's what yeah. have alligator. You're buying an animal that's smart as a crow. It knows everything's going on around him. They also very quickly and more than any other reptile bond with their keeper quick, even if the keeper's not that nice to them. They live a very long time under terrible subpar conditions and suffer yeah. from ED and God knows what. And then finally at 20 or 30 years old, you got a four foot male alligator all 
shortened and dwarfed and distorted and somebody will dump it out somewhere and, and it just can't live its life out. And why would you do that for something that sells for a hundred dollars a piece or 200? You know, at one time I tapped, I, 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 I tapped a bread baby crocodilians of all kinds, including alligators, and sold them to the public in the 1990s. But toward the end of the 1990s, I began to realize that this, uh, I bred so many, the same king of crocs at, at Gatorland. Mm-hmm. That big nasty one they call Fidel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, it's not nasty at all. My Vanessa and all of my kids used to go in with him. They were all trained. He'd come up <laughs> to him and point at him, he stops. He's not going in with him now, baby. Remember, he wouldn't do anything to me. <laughs> I don't know why I won't run. And number two, he knows not to. He just won't. Right. Uh, they are that intelligent. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the, I lost my train of thought again because I was thinking about that. Keeping, uh, sorry. Uh, you bred baby alligators in the 90s. Uh, and I was up to the public and, and yep. this baby crocodiles, and we bred so many human crocs that I couldn't even give them away. Because we were having, you know, 25 to like 40 a year with two to three clutches every single year. It mm-hmm. all has to do with diet. With the same ones they have at Gatorland and hatch one or two every now and again now. Mm-hmm. But there's no, who, who do you find that can keep one? Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it, it's like, I don't know what to say because a lot of things I never dreamed would be possible back in my heyday, <clears throat> you know, in the 70s and 80s is now, you know, like the idea of wild Burmese in Florida. Holy smokes. Mm-hmm. I never yeah. 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 Uh, or, or a giant dead echoes on my porch. Right. I, I mean, it's just everything has changed so much. Herpetoculture has evolved so much. And really, the, the one thing, no matter how many little problems herpetoculture has, they do two things pretty well with animals they like. And that is breed a hell of a lot of them so that there would always be some release back in the wild. And we'll use two examples, rhino, wallace, for one. Uh, that probably over half of them were smuggled into this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of I me, mean, even early on, everybody did, and nobody cared, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now there are so many rhino wanted to in captivity, literally thousands. If anything happened, there's probably more in, in, you know, in captivity in the U.S. than live in the wild with this for milk, certainly yeah. more than on milk. You, all, you have a reservoir of these captive animals to take back and, and release. I've been giving away chilobophorus, mm-hmm. Jamaican boas and Puerto Rican boas for 20 to at least 20 years. I, I gave you something, didn't I, Keith? If I remember. Yes, you did. No, absolutely. That was a long time ago. But I, I did, we gave seven pairs away year before last. Mm-hmm. And that's different people in the U.S. just so they don't die out in herpetoculture and to at yeah. least preserve bloodlines if something happens in nature. And we're also working with the blue tree monitors now from Atanta, running mm-hmm. some crap, same reasons. And we now have F2 eggs cooking. That's pretty nice. Cool. Yeah, I saw that. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I think so that happens more and more with uh, just people letting stuff go out of herpetoculture because it's not popular. Yeah. Well, here, well, what they do here in Florida is they'll mm-hmm. take a thing that's readily saleable like Degacos or these male chameleons mm-hmm. and start a population somewhere and turn them all loose and then go back themselves to harvest them to sell in the pet trade later. That is how a lot, of, a high percentage of our stuff here in Florida actually got into nature, and it wasn't a pet trade. I don't care what anybody says. The stuff was released, a lot of it, on purpose. Now, I hate to say it, 
but it happened. It, 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 does that upset you as like a Florida native naturalist? You know, I'm sorry. Does that upset you kind of as a Florida native and naturalist that this could be something that would kind of disrupt nature in Florida? Well, I never turned anything loose. I'm not. Oh no, you didn't. I, but I other, never, but other people did it. Yeah, I would never turn anything loose. I'm telling yeah. you how they. I already knew the, the issues with that 40 years ago. I'm not yeah. like. I wasn't a babe in the woods then. I mean, I'm, I was I was cutting edge back in, in the eighties. You yeah. know, not now. So we knew all of that, but the, but but that's not the problem. What I'm saying is is that irresponsible people that that buy and sell reptiles. A lot of what we call the hunters here, we go out and professionally hunt snakes, with mm-hmm. local snakes, whatever, and then they go sell them to whoever buys them strictly, or not that many people want native snakes anymore, but a few will, and they export them cheap, and still just like they did 40 years ago, and mm-hmm. they just pretty much go unnoticed and nobody cares. And so these same people will take these giant geckos. Okay, here's a gecko that wholesale they can get 15 to $20 each for, depending on the size and the sex. That's what they wholesale for. If you took mm-hmm. one and strip up to John Shanahan at Normal Carl, that's what he give you. And so you go out in the night, you put them in this place, go back two years later, and there's Going to catch a hundred of them in the daytime, and you got fifteen hundred, eighteen hundred dollars. And of course, the geckos are multiplying and moving all over the place. Where you turn them loose at too, and then like the agamas, pretty soon the agamas started in Miami actually, and now the agamas showed up here about eight years ago, and now there's agamas almost over the whole state of Florida. Jesus. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's. Uh, that's horrible. <laughs> I don't, I, I, we don't have anybody to blame but ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And I've done stupid shit in the past too, but I never did stupid stuff like that. You yeah, like ever devastated I, nature. Yeah. We buy, <laughs> and we, and we buy these venomous reptiles, exotic venomous reptiles. Yeah. We have no antivenom for them for the most part. We're hoping that a zoo close to us will have it. And so then we get bit and we delay things, which can cause death pretty quick with the right bite. Or somebody mm-hmm. tries to bite any venom for you, and we tie ups, and you, you take it from somebody else, like us or some other facility. But mm-hmm. even in the, if you have venom mistakes, personic venom mistakes, here's what you need to do, and this is an open message to, I know there's not many of you on this podcast. So the first thing is you need to get any venom or whatever you carry yourself. Mm-hmm. And then the doctors in the emergency room or treatment and have treatment mm-hmm. protocols. Like we have here to bring in, not that we need it here with Venom One, we're taken care of and we know the, the people personally, but it's not fair for you to put pressure up here in Pennsylvania on the Pittsburgh or the Philadelphia Zoo and take their anti-venom that protects their keepers and then they get bit and then they don't have protection. And mm-hmm. it's very hard right now for us to get monocle cobra anti-venom. Mm-hmm. Primarily, it's hard to get it from Thailand now. And second of all, because it's a common venom mistake in private hands. A lot of facilities everywhere have said there's out to save people's lives. Wow. I see. Wow. Remember at the beginning, I told you I I see all sides. I was never just in herpetoculture. I'm not really an academic and I'm not a soup person, but I I see this from all of those angles. The big picture, how they network and how they all interact and even affect the other, you know, the other, yeah. or whatever situation it is. So when they, when, when they're 
when somebody gets bit and they take that venom or anti-venom from, you know, a zoo or facility or whatever, do they, do they, is the facility or the zoo on, on the hook for the price of that? Or does that person have to pay that back or how does that work? Well, they're, they're supposed to pay it back. Uh, but to be honest with you, I have done that more, more in the eighties than any other time. Nineteen eighty, mm-hmm. I did it seven different times. I never got paid for anything. <laughs> I just did. Yeah. Jesus. I tried. I just didn't get anybody paid at the hospital. <laughs> right. The person didn't have any money. So somebody got but paid. And that's what you. I couldn't be... let. I, I couldn't let him die either. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I would imagine, you know. It's the same with a zoo, I promise you, because I know a few zoos that have told me the same. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh. I would imagine that any kind of margin is, is super tight, right? So yeah. when you're, I mean, when you're having to shell out that money for that antivenom because somebody's being irresponsible, it's, yeah, that's, a, but, that's uh, tough. From a human standpoint, you don't have really an option. Yeah, no. yeah, you don't. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ooh. yeah. So th- something that comes up on our show a lot is we hear from people talking about various species, uh, about how they get lost to the hobby, right? And the debate is, is that are they lost to the hobby because nobody cared about it? And that could be because, say, maybe because, you know, morphs sort of took the, the front seat and, yeah. the, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or is it because some animals are better suited to captivity and some aren't. What's your thoughts on that? Well, it would depend completely upon the species that you talk about, and each one mm-hmm. would have a different uh, circumstances. So if you tell you, they want to give you a, tell you why. Um, what would you like say? eyelash boas. How about uh, eyelash boas? Yeah. Mm, you go. Right. The only trachea boas I've ever seen in the hobby was a pair of Crickia boa belligeri and two pairs of Crickia boa gularis that I got. I remember okay. him on your list. Again, from Bruce at Bronx Reptile, and he also sent me a pair of Corallis, uh, something Colombiana, that weird chocolate Colum- uh, uh, annulated boa from Colombia. And I got okay. a pair two. And again, Bruce had no idea what they were. So when the dealers in New York, Alfred and those guys, we had open accounts for thousands and tens of thousands of dollars. They didn't bother about asking anybody or selling it to anybody else because they knew if it was weird or new or if they didn't know what it was, I would want it. So Bruce calls me up and he goes, I got your shipment come down. Listen, he says, I can run some shit I got in from uh, Ecuador and I don't have a clue what it is. He says, I don't even know what it's selling. And so, and there was a thank you, boy. When I opened that up, I thought, oh, God, I died going to heaven. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, I, think it was, I don't know. I didn't keep them long. You know that book, uh, Stakes of the World by John Murders, Living Stakes of the World with those yeah. plates? Uh-huh. You know those pictures of the trachea boa in there? And, yeah. that, and that Wirach viper, too, Trimerosaurus Wirachite. Uh-huh. Those came from me. I was a guy. I got the Wirachite viper. I went and got in Thailand. Because I wanted to get them, and I knew that they were in southern Thailand and really rare. But the others I got from Bruce Reptile. That's what. That's the same one I'm telling the story about. But so when you pick them up, I didn't know anything about it. I knew I, I heard they lived around water, but I didn't realize how quiet they actually were until years later. But I never kept them that long. The minute they made my process, every zoo in the country bought them. 
Same like when I got both pieces of Azemiops in, the blackout Azemiops, and the other one I can't remember. One's Azemiops PI and the other one I can't remember. But And they're gone in a heart, I mean, like instantly, because zoos want the rarest of the rare to impress their zoo buddies always. Right. You know, so I say like we do with our cool shit, too, with the Herpacos thing. So mm-hmm. the thing about those boas is that when I picked one up, it got stiff. And it kind of kinked up, and I think it tried to look like a stick. And if you put it in water, it would look like a stick in the water. Kind huh. of. And I had no idea that they did that. I mean, I knew exactly what it was, and I knew that time I, I thought it was a boa. because it was, But I didn't know they did that. Wow. I, they were gone. I didn't have any chance to see how to keep them or anything hardly because I always go, I don't know a lot about them, and I, really, and I wasn't overly interested in them, too, like I would be today. And uh-huh. I just have a saying about keeping it or not. When in doubt, ship it out. <laughs> Gone. Um, <laughs> but, Tom, but, Tom, why do you think that is it, is it legalities of leaving their country is why we don't see them in captivity today? Yeah, they're common. I just mm-hmm. had friends on uh, Harry and Castle went there, and they saw a lot of them. Yeah. And I got a friend there. You want to see some trachea boa come down here? I'll show you bunches of them. It's like everything else. They're in disjunct colonies, and if you know where they are and how to find them, they're up there. Yeah. I, honestly, I, I believe they're a tropidopid snake anyway. Um, basically, I don't even think they'd be hard to breed. They reminded me somewhat of tropidopids, except for the acting like a stick. But I don't know mm-hmm. if you know it too or not. Tropidopis, tropidopis, the first one of those I caught, I had no idea they did this. We turned a rock over on belly, and there was a Tropidopus canis curtis, which is a, that was thought to be a boa too. We're talking 1971, probably. It was about that long. And I turned the rock and I picked it up, and immediately there was blood all over its head. And so I thought, oh shit, I, I damaged it with the rock. They all were hemorrhaged from their mouth. Oh, wow. Some of from the side. Yeah. Uh-huh. The, but I never saw any of the, of the uh, eyelash boas do that. That's why I'm. That's why I brought that up. But the, uh, but they are trucked up in remember. Hmm. That's interesting. That that's interesting. Okay. It's the fun little observations you see. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask. Like you, you were talking point. about. Oh, oh, go ahead. Okay. Oh no, I was going to say. Um, how did you start making the trips? overseas and uh, you know these connections that you made to get these different reptiles because there's no internet you know everything's snail mail <laughs> you know mm-hmm. uh, first caribbean and the caribbean mm-hmm. i live in fort myers florida so you know i could drive to miami hop on a plane and be anywhere in the caribbean in hours and uh caribbean in the 1970s let me tell you something first time i went to haiti was in 1972 and when I and imagine a man, I graduated from high school in 67, 1972, and I've heard all these stories about I'd already been to, by the time I went, decided to be brave enough to go to Haiti, I'd already been to Bimini, I'd been to Eleuthera, and uh, the Ragged Islands, but I had never been to Haiti. So we flew in, and as we're flying over Haiti, the, the, the pilot tells us that we're flying over Haiti, and you can see the boundary between the DR in Haiti, and I looked down, and the entire demarcation line between Haiti and the Dominican Republic, it looked like a desert on one side, 
in a tropical paradise on the Dominican Republic side. Hmm. Beautiful trees, mountains, and rainforests. And they had these big new mountains, but with patches of rainforest here and there. Mm-hmm. In there, and we, you know, we drive to Port-au-Prince. We go to voodoo ceremonies and see. I mean, I went to Haiti 10 or 12 times. and uh, But how, how I did all that, it was the fascination of living life and seeing reptiles that uh, I was uh, a student student. So uh, Albert Schwartz had already revised all of the Epicrates living in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Now they're Alabathras, but they weren't there. So I knew where every island was and all the animals were. And some of my friends had been, it had them named after them because they were over there collecting them for the professors, you know, like Al Schwartz knew over. And so I did a lot of that too. I collected a brand new species of the giant Caribbean gecko on Turks and Caicos, on North Caicos in 1974 named Aristotle Hecti after Barbara Hecta of the American Museum of Natural History, that her entire life was spent studying Aristotle. It was a fitting name for it. And it's a great big, like, 10-inch long gecko. Well, anyway, so, we, so when we get to Haiti, though, it's like going into, back in time, 100 years. Uh, I mean, but but seeing the poverty with that, you know, the desert. So then, this was the other thing I was going to say, too, because it's too long to tell Caribbean story. That trip, Jeff Schrock was with me. I don't know if any of you know Jeff Schrock. If you Google his name, he was one of the first people to bring Indian pythons in the world in, in wow. Detroit. Did a lot of the early stuff, and he's still alive in Florida and older than me. So anyway, Jeff went with me, and we rented a car, and we decided we were going to drive up to Capesian on the north coast, which goes across the big Atibaditi Desert. Uh, once you get to go naive, and then uh, to go naive, and then once you you get there, you head up in the mountains. But we didn't realize it was a dirt road once you got to Gunaí. So once we got to Gunaí, when we started going up the big mountains to come down into the Capacion, shit, we're like seven or 8,000 feet up, and this is a dirt damn road with two cars. So we, it took us 13 hours to go 180 miles. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, we're, we're tired as crap, and we collected, and I can tell you a lot of collected stuff, too. I call Hypsorhynchus Ferox and the wild chameleons and alsophis and just, I caught my first forage bow on the way up there. I could stay, but I won't. So we get up to the north part up there and, uh, uh, we go out to this, the next day go out to this village called Limbe. And the people at first don't believe that we'll buy snakes and tarantulas and stuff. So they, they don't bring much or they bring us dead ones. So we explain we want, <clears throat> we always say, la culer viva, la culer viva. In Creole, that means live snake, not hurt. You know? La <laughs> with a K. So these people that started to bring us, they brought us two Haitian boas that day, but they were tied by vines, real tight to sticks. So Jeff and I are looking. We brought a lot of extra snake bags. So I said, let's give them each a couple of snake bags, man. These guys that brought the snakes in will catch us some more. So we did. They about 10 or 12 snake bags. We come back the next day. They bring us snakes tied to sticks. And for the bags. They're, they made clothes out of them. Something <laughs> down, they would pick it up and save it like an empty water bottle. And then it, then what I'm trying to say to you is I began to see how poor these people really were. Mm. We don't have a clue. And that slapped me in the face when I was like 23 years old. And it just right. changed the course of my life. And also when people talk about, oh, that asshole, he's killing an elephant or a, a key cobra or whatever. You don't live with those animals. If you did, it, 
like this for people you understand better. It's like there's just too many of us. Oh yeah. There is. I'm sorry. I get yeah. off. There. No, no, no. Yeah, no. You, that, we, we love tangents. Go on them. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Do as many as you like. That's the whole point of the show. So, I mean, imagine the poverty. Just to think about that kind of poverty. Jeff and I, of course, when we saw that he, they had this. I, I've got a pick of this. I'll send it to you once we get to the key. But the, yeah. uh, the guy, the kids wearing that shirt with the stakes tied to stick, that was the second day. And Jeff and I laughed. And when we got to laughing, we looked at each other. And it was just a total sadness. Yeah. To think about how important those sacks were to them just to have something to wear. Right. Yeah. And we're thinking about the cheapest price we could buy this shit for because we could make more money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That happens. I mean, that, that, that's, that had to have been something you dealt with a lot on oh, various oh, trips I, all I over the world. Oh, yeah. I, I went around the world on my first trip when I was 34. And then that would have been about 1982 or 83. And uh, I was gone six weeks. My first stop was the Seychelles. Mm. I stayed. I stayed with Shabbat Aldabras and uh, 24, like, small and medium-sized ones. And I shipped back Osuma Sunbergai, I think, for the first time. I sent up to Alfred Ojeda in New York back at that time, the Felsuma. And I sent Felsuma Abonite, which I think was the first time, too. And I was mm-hmm. after that aquatic chameleon, the chameleon tigress that's endemic to Mahi. Mm-hmm. I couldn't buy it. But if I had it, that would have been the only one that's ever been brought back, for sure. Jeez. Wow. Yeah, I think on the Sun Burgai and the Abadite, those were the very first ones in horticulture ever. Because the only place they occur is there, too. They're not found, like on Madagascar. So then we, uh, so then after I left the Seychelles, I went to Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka owed me already about $25,000 for an albino Burmese pipe, and I had shipped them. And part of our agreement was that I, they didn't have money, but I could have anything I want from Sri Lanka up to that amount of money and settle on the price. So, so I said that, that's what prompted the trip around the world. So I stayed a week there in Sri Lanka as a guest of the government, and they put me, gave me a bungalow in the big national park with Patu. And I saw wild pythons and crates and cobras and all that. Talagoya and Kabaragoya, that's the Bengal and uh, water monitors, uh, uh, the big crocodile, uh, salties, muggers, muggers out in front of our thing. And we had just a great time. And I feel collected, I shipped back Sri Lankan star tortoises, Sri Lankan pythons, real ones, pure ones, and mm-hmm. a lot of other ones from there. And once I left there, once I left, they sh- I packed it and they shipped the shipment. And then I left there and flew to Bangkok for a week. Middang, and then uh, it changed my life too on really cool stuff because he knew the stuff I wanted. He knew, uh, I visited him before he died in 2012 in, in Bangkok again. I've got a picture of mm-hmm. pushing him wheelchair now. He's the guy that provided all the Alvaro Burmese pythons, every single one of them came in the U.S. Wow. Uh, and then I went, after I left Dang, I went to Hong Kong for four days. Shipments back. Then I went to Japan. They just three days, and then back through San Francisco and back to the U.S. But I went through Europe. Okay, uh, wow. And that was my first trip around the world. I took four of them, or five of them, and then I also did side trips in Asia a lot, just to one place. I've been to Asia a lot. Was the albino berm? Amazon too. Oh yeah, Amazon. yeah. Have you you've been to Australia too, right? I have. Yeah. Cool. He, he went herping with Ty and uh, and Scott. 
Oh, yeah. that's right. They were at that same tree we were yeah, at. Yeah, they were at the same tree. Go. All right. Yeah. The Salatorian swine out. The big yeah. Salatorian swine out. Yeah, we caught some of those too. Yeah. Yeah, I caught a lot of everything I caught in Australia was new. Are you kidding me? I didn't catch an ammo and pellet python, though. I didn't get that. Yeah, we did. Yeah. <laughs> we saw it. We did. Yeah, that was, that was the one we got. We got yeah. one on Tom Crutchfield. I'll take it. Yeah, that's uh, the only thing we got on it. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I did, though. You know, I was up like five hours, and I was in Peter Birch's backyard. I was just tired. You could go spend a night at Peter's house and fly to Brisbane to do the the uh, presentation at the expo there. In, in yeah. Uh-huh. 2014, I think. So, uh, we looked at his reptiles. It was really, it was wintertime. So his reptile house was hot. I still had my coat on, but it was probably 60 or 62 outside. So I said, I'm just, he said, well, step outside. You look hot. I said, yeah, let's do it. So we stepped outside and the side of the mountain come. He's, it's got a, he's got a garage, a two car garage and the upstairs is reptiles and downstairs is cars. But the mountain comes down almost even to the upstairs. Mm-hmm. Where the balcony is, and uh-huh. you can just walk out on the side of the mountain on this big, like, little bridge. It's, so I walk out there, and we're sitting there for, I don't know, 10 minutes or so, and I heard something in the grass, and it, it sounded like a snake. I could be a snake out of this. Well, it's already some damn diamond pipe. Oh, beautiful man. diamond <laughs> pipe. Like four or five feet long. I had a picture. I was like, nah. I, I, I mean, I got pissed off with Peter Russell. You put that there. You had to put you that there. You knew that this was a plant. <laughs> no, I mean, no, we should He had old shed skins under his house. There were, he had, a, he had a, he had a pair of land mullets and three babies that bask every day in his front yard. They lived under a, like a, a trailer, right? A big house spring of water dragons all over the yard with the water in the, in the back. Oh, you know, yeah. And those, uh, those Polaris geckos, mm-hmm. they were as common as brown There's thousands of them. Uh, I asked wow. them all he goes outside. Every rock we turned over had a follow web under it. Almost every one. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. Trip. Speak, speaking of diamond pythons, one of the things that uh, obviously we're Morelia Python Radio, so we got to talk a little bit Morelia. Um, diamond pythons. You keep yours outside. Um, Lisa, yeah, they, they, uh, one of our patrons, had a question. She was curious about you know. Uh, you tempt them close to a hundred degrees out there basking in the morning, and you know. Um, do you? I guess one of her questions was, do you use food cycle to help, uh, or do you feed on a regular schedule? Just what is it like keeping them outside? Have you noticed a difference in behavior? I think you keep a lot of your reptiles outside, if I'm not mistaken. I almost all of them. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Well, for the first thing is, snakes don't eat on schedules. So any of you that feed snakes on schedules should immediately stop and get off all forms and say it's necessary. Mm-hmm. You feed the snake. When it's hungry, the snake tells you when it's hungry, depending on length of time, how warm it is, and all kind of factors. But so we have no set time feeding snakes. We do make sure that the animals, just by eyeballing them, have enough uh, weight to be able to produce eggs, but not fat. None of our stuff here is fat. Nothing. I'm probably mm-hmm. the fattest here, and way too heavy. But but the reptiles are not fat. We just don't. And you don't need to. We, uh, we, we missed last year on diamond pythons because I took the mail out too early. And that was the first mm-hmm. year in years. So last, if I had had that clutch last year, I expected that would have been my 24th rear successful clutch of diamond pythons in about 11 years. 
Wow. Jesus. At times, I've had three females and used three clutches a year and stuff. I mean, we, we kept we, a lot of them, and the only ones that I kept to breed are those Gosford, real classic-looking mm-hmm. bisons. You know, yeah. I don't do dwarfs. I don't want any of that. I don't even want it here because uh, I like like the one I caught. You know, I like those. And uh, But we don't do anything special. We keep them outside. And we brought every single thing we have inside of the tropical bullets and monitors. We mm-hmm. had three days here, uh, 35 or 36 degrees. Mm-hmm. You know what? The only ones I didn't bring in? Diamond pythons. Diamond pythons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're also the only ones that don't have any heat at all of any kind. Really? Not even a heating pad. Wow. And you know what? I've never had one even get a respiratory. Wow. Cinzinia, every, we find that the diamonds will breed every year with enough weight. The Cinzinia we have, we breed every other year like clockwork. You might can right. make one breed. A two, actually, we had one breed two years in a row, but it had like one baby or two babies rather than eight or ten. So we just let them cycle themselves like they want in nature every other year. The Chilobothras go every other year, Jamaicans, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, all that. Uh, the Interestingly enough, we found, now, now also too, we keep all of our snakes together year-round, all the time. Okay. Everybody mm-hmm. else says, I'm going to put them in when they're breeding. Well, let me ask you something. How the hell do you know when the female snake is giving off pheromone? <laughs> I can't smell that. If anybody can smell it, I'd be able to, but I can't. I can't believe you can't eat. So how do you know when the right time is to put it in? You know what people tell you, what's successful for others, but everybody's house is different. Everyone's thing is a little bit different. But I'm going to tell you one thing, the damn snakes know. They mm-hmm. know. And we have no problem breeding very rare things here. Mm-hmm. We don't. Because right. uh, unless there's some factor like cold or something where we just can't get them cold enough, the mangas right. have been a pain. But, but pretty much every other species here, we breed, even tree monitors and stuff. Mm-hmm. And not with difficulty. Just let it be the kind of animal it is. Let them choose the temperature they want to be. Like with diamond pythons, they, I have found that the temperature I've tempted them the most at, and at no particular time of year, I've seen in the spring when they when they carry eggs, because, you know, she'll lay eggs probably April, I'm guessing, or May, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and pretty much for all of them, uh, the diamonds will get up to about 95 to 96 degrees is the temp I do the most, but I tempt one diamond several times at over a hundred degrees. Wow. And basking, and it's, and it's 85 degrees outside. So why is it even basking? You know, I mean, it mm-hmm. doesn't like yeah. But apparently it needs to access. <clears throat> but here's how I think on all that about keeping them apart and all that. I don't know more than those animals do about how they want to live or anything else. So, so I, I make sure they have cage big enough if they want to get away from each other, they can. But being honest with you, most of my pairs choose to be together almost all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, to be perfectly frank with you, why wouldn't they do that in the wild? Because they have the same, I mean, they have this, if they share the territories with the same females, they're going to see those same snakes all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you find one by itself doesn't mean that it lives solitary all the time. And one thing that should tell you different than that is that people don't think so. It's just hiding. What about in the wintertime when you turn over those tin piles and find bunches of the same kind of snakes up to one piece of tin. They're not there by accident, yeah. dude. They're there because that's a good place and their buddies are there. Yeah, and, right. And, uh, and, and the dens, the same thing. It's the same damn snakes. They know each other. 
Yeah. And we've never had one fight. The only thing I've ever had happen is I had a female Jamaican boa that she's actually, I've had her well over 30 years. Mother of your babies. Either there are babies now, I'm sure. That absolutely didn't like another female. And a couple of times at feeding, she bit the female and wrapped her. And I thought, well, an accident, but they know better anyway. Even though that where you think they get on the one, they don't know the difference. They do. They know the difference. <laughs> right. It's, it's pretty much on purpose. And I'm not just saying that. We watched it here. Watch what happened. You'll see one turn mm-hmm. the other. It's almost 100% of the time. Uh, black-headed pythons, no, but like regular bullets and pythons, they don't want to eat each other, not really. It won't, right. It's not like a garbage snake might. So so when you get these, uh, uh, again, I got on the channel. Uh, so do you think this girl was just trying to get the other girls oh, out so her babies would have a chance? Or? Uh, no, no, she didn't want the female in the cage. And later on, I go out there. I don't know if it's a month later or so, a little bit later, I posted about it, actually, because it was so unusual. And I see bite marks on it. No, it's been constricted, and the other female killed it. Oh. On purpose. Hmm. Just wanted in there with it. Wow. Why? Hmm. I don't know. But I just did a whole thing on grief, too, that I saw with Platalis Lepidus Clavari for a friend of Harry Green, and he should need no introduction. He's probably, he wrote that book, Tracks and Shadows. He's mm-hmm. probably the yeah. Anthropologist in several levels of mine for a long time. And uh, he asked me if I would talk about the grief thing I saw with the clobberite to a scientist friend of his that now has discovered that reptiles not, I, I think all of you know, all of the, the reptiles play with toys. All yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I yeah. put like the video, the video, even they have favorite toys. He also finds they have grief, and I agree with her. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. You ever had a snake that was paired with keep them together so it never put like I kept a pair of clock right together for they were some adults when I got them, they fit it off, they stayed together everywhere within three years. They began to breed and have babies, Franklin Franklin Mountain uh clock right. And uh they uh, they had babies for four litters for eight years, you know, every other year. And the male dots injured his mouth somehow and died. When he did, the female went off feed, wasn't hard to eat. So I got a beautiful male from the Plancius, you know, which was uh, not but not the same male. Put it in with her. She never stayed together with him like she did with the other one. They were inseparable. And eventually, I finally took the male out since she wouldn't eat at all with the male in there. And then finally, she died about nine months later. Now, there was nothing wrong with her. He just mm-hmm. decided she all live. Mm-hmm. So is that great? I don't know. But this scientists wow. think so. And honestly, I've changed a lot that I thought in my early days. It, it would not surprise me if she's correct. I actually am leaning towards her being correct because I've seen similar stuff and just didn't pay as much attention to it because I didn't think it was possible. It might be. Yeah, I think one of the things for me uh, over the years, you talk about like the progression of a keeper. Um, field herping has changed my view of things a lot, you know, because, you know, if I hear about it or whatever, it's different when you when you see it or you're in that environment, you feel it. Um, you start to think of things like, wow, am I keeping this as the best I can? And, you know, is this, you know, just paper in a water bowl, you know, well enough and. Then I read the book, The Secret Lies or Secret Social Lives of Reptiles, which just like totally 
blew my mind about, you know, some of the things in there. I mean, you talk about how you've evolved over the year. Like, what is your uh, thoughts on reptile intelligence and how's that? Oh, my thoughts on reptile intelligence. Number one, Gordon Burkhart, who's one of those authors of that secret life book of reptiles, Mm -hmm. reached out Mm -hmm. to me about seven or eight years ago and asked if he used some of my videos in his seminars, teaching seminars. And I allowed him to. Over this time, we became fairly close friends. Uh, I met him at a talk I gave and one he gave at the Chiricahua Desert Museum on Advanced Herpetological Husbandry Symposium some years ago. Mm-hmm. And he has helped me understand scientifically what I am seeing, and he has also confirmed all of the things that I've said as also being factual from a scientific standpoint as much as we do today. Everyone to be forced to read The Secret Life of Reptiles. And uh, uh, if you want to keep reptiles, you should read it because it will help you see them as the kind of animals they actually are, just as he said. But going back to, in terms of the cognition, this last February, I was asked by Loma Linda University, Bill Hayes, mm-hmm. who's there. I'm sure a lot of you know who that name is. Uh, mm-hmm. Highly, probably the most published uh, herpetological uh, professional biologist in, in the country. Uh, you know, that, he edited that book uh, uh, about rattlesnakes. That really goes really good books. It just came out the real thick ones in England. So anyway, Bill asked me if I would do a, a, a program on cognition of reptiles, and we called it uh, a seminar. And Gordon spoke there too, Gordon Burkhart, the, the book guy. And my presentation was cold-blooded cognition from a keeper's perspective. You know, because I'm not, I'm not trying to go into the side. I just, mm-hmm. and I asked them a lot of different things. And, and, and then Gordon had another seminar here last, it was week before last. And God, I think he used six of my videos in that. So my, here's what I think. I think that crocodilians are as smart as, at least as smart as crows or parrots and even primates, even almost up to the great apes. Um, I saw a video of a friend of mine and lives in Tavernier, collects reptiles. He has an American crocodile living in his backyard. He sent me a video of a floating bag of garbage in the canal. Mm. The crocodile surfaced, took the bag of garbage, pushed it up to his boat ramp, pushed it half in and half out of the water, then backed up three feet and submerged. Set up and pushed and baited it for stray cats and dogs. They did. Oh, no. <laughs> those alligators and crocodiles with all those plants all over them. Mm-hmm. They that on purpose. It's camouflage. And they get up at the age and set. And so they wear costumes and stuff. So if you really look at it like that, that's what it is. These things are not like what even any of you three think, I promise you. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I have seen things that just make me get chill bumps because like, like Stacy's alligator squirt she had for so long. Mm-hmm. Squirt was made alligator chow off of a plate. I have a video of this, by the way. He lived in the swamp loose by the house here and he would come over, but he would always lose a lot of his stuff trying to eat it because he didn't have a good place to sit like back where he liked to stay. So after the, the second time he did it, when he swam over to get it, he looks at the plate instead of taking anything off the plate, he picks the plate up and his jaws up high. And then he walks, and at parts he has to swim and then walk again, hold it all over the water until he gets back to where he sits. 
Then he sat it down where he went to get it, he spilled it, and then he got it off and ate it. <laughs> so he took this I have the video. Like I'm not, I couldn't make that up. It's great. Right. <laughs> but yet it's true. Yeah. So when I see this, I don't say anything on a lot of these, and I don't go on forums and all that anymore because really there's nothing really. I'm just doing the best I can to teach without being as hard as I'd like to be, to be honest with you, with idiots right. out right. there. And they speak without even understanding at all the big picture. Yeah. They're looking at one little, teeny, tiny. Like, you know, like I see these forums where people want to bathe Sakura, like lino iguanas and all that. Why in the hell would you want to bathe an animal that is terrible? Most of these animals live on little keys. And how a lot of them get killed is being uh, in hurricanes where the salt water over, over, over washes them away and they drown. They can float for hours, but they eventually get killed by something drown. They don't like water. They hate water. They're not green iguanas. They're rock iguanas. Right. People do that. I put up a picture of 60, 70 foot tall cactus trees in the Atimaniti and not a green blade of grass anywhere. That's where they live. Right. And you put them in a bathtub and been arguing with me about it. <laughs> I, lo- I love the and, and then argue with you about it. Like what, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I, the thing the thing I try to preach all the time is like if you're into a species, whatever species it would be, you know, if you can, rather than go and buy in the you know the hundreds of snakes, right? Just go and find where that animal is, buy a plane ticket, go to that area. Even if you don't find the snake there, you know, just be in the habitat, you know, try to, you know, a lot about, you automatically learn a crap load about an animal that is being where it is. That's Mm -hmm. my biggest advantage over everybody else. Like I wanted to find a a black roughneck monitor. I never collected one, but I know exactly where they live. Right. I was there. I wanted to see one. And I know what the people tell me, how they find them. They find them on the side of the trees. You know, and mm-hmm. so I, you know, so I did that on a lot of things. I, that was part of my trips. Where I was making money and being able to pay for it all by shipping stuff that I could sell it a profit. I could afford to take other trips and make money. But honestly, it was really about adventure. Yeah, I, you know, I wanted to catch cobra, not read about one. Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> right, I, I, right, exactly. I, I didn't want to read a bullet spike. I wanted to catch one. I wanted right, to see yeah. a lot. I didn't want to see. Right. Uh, that, that was how I was. And I did all that and it's still done it. I mean, my last trip to the Amazon was 2018. Oh, okay. So, nice. It's our ecological biodiversity expeditions we used to do. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So, so I mean, uh, all I can say is all of you, uh, herpers are getting older by memories, not things. Yeah. I like that. That's, I like that a lot. Uh, so, spark- you sparked a lot of memories just me thinking about stuff I wouldn't have thought of, except for y'all probably making some money. Yeah. That's the good thing. I mean, and, and as far as like reptiles, I mean, clearly you've had so many over the years. Do you have a favorite and has it shifted and changed? At all it's pretty much the same. My favorite reptiles still in the world are Cyclora and like Chilobothrus boas. Okay. And I decided a long time ago when the law wouldn't let you sell Jamaicans across state lines that I was going to breed as many Chilobothrus as I could, as many species as I could. And honestly, I bred every species of Chilobothrus except for Chilobothrus monensis and that new species they just described a couple of years ago that 
Uh, they had Barahona on the border with the Dominican Republic in Haiti, but south of Lagos in Wakio. It's only because I didn't know it existed, but I read Fords, ha- ha- Haitians or Dominicans, Jamaica, all of them, every single species. And, and Abacobo was even exiled and, uh, years back. Uh, and I still love them and I still keep them today. I remember and years I, ago you had, uh, you were just Stacy in the background, just then walking just by, reaching by as you're speaking by. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you making faces? They're laughing at you. Something like that. Uh, I, uh, I actually have some of your. Uh, I actually have There's two his, of your Dominican poems <laughs> that, oh, cool. uh, that I got. I got through the grapevine that are traced back to you. So cool. I was about to take a shower. All right, go take one, babe. I won't take one after this. <laughs> But um, I know you mentioned earlier the albino berm, and, and I and you know we did uh, we did a little book club thing on on the stolen world where we kind of covered that a little bit. But we just kind of, if you want to walk us through, find well, something berm, like well, that. What actually, what actually happened with the albino berm mm-hmm. is the story's not correct and stolen okay. world. That's not actually, okay. a lot of that book's not true. Okay, it, it's, some of the stuff that happened and it didn't even happen even close to like. That was really what happened from the point of view of Hank Moe more than anybody else. Gotcha. Hank <laughs> Moe, and, and if any of you know Hank Moe, he is the most intentional pathological liar, and I don't even think he knows the truth from fiction. But anyway, what happened with the Albano Burmese is Alfred O'Hara in New York City called me and said he had a chance to pick up three Albano Burmese pythons, two males and one female, $7,000 a piece. The year was 1980 or 81. I owned my own house already by then and stuff. And I mean, I had a small mortgage on it, but it was mine. So I didn't have that much. I had about 12 grand or so. So I took a second mortgage, got the rest, bought the three pythons. They came in in a couple of weeks and, uh, he shipped them down. Uh, I, uh, Bob Clark came down and looked at him. He'd been trying to get them and couldn't get them. So he came down and, uh, he, he come down a long time before that too. He used to get a lot of stuff from me back in the day. And, uh, we made a deal for us. I gave him one of the mails for $10,000 and, uh, not for sale. That was a great long fee. And, uh, he then owed me half of all the first clutch and had to return the pipe. The okay. mail I exported to the zoo in Sri Lanka, which wanted it really bad because it's a Buddhist nation. And they wanted an albino cobra, which I had too. So I set up my first trip around the world. This is probably 81 or 82 at the most. And then, uh, I had the big female, which I liked and kept. Plus I was going to get head babies. So my plan mm-hmm. was, you know, so anyway, so, so I, that same trip, I tell you about the first trip. I, I fly to Thailand and, uh, I meet Mr. Dang and, uh, he'd been in National Geographic Design. I'm so happy to meet him. And I, uh, and I go up to him and he, uh, uh, he takes us out to dinner. He, oh, he was the nicest guy in the world. And we're in his office in the afternoon and I'm sitting there. Roger Ope is with me. That's a name from the past. You might have met him at an he, He's dead now a long time, but, uh, I said, Mr. Day, I said, uh, listen, I want to see your albino pythons. And he starts laughing and he's got more jewelry on than, than probably all my cars were worth at the time. And I even had a Mercedes at the time. And, uh, I mean, he's very wealthy, you can tell. And he goes, he starts laughing and he goes, well, you have already seen them, Tom. They're at your house. And I said, 
What? <laughs> they were stolen by from Dang by another reptile dealer that supplied uh, uh, Alfred Ojeda called mm-hmm. Marnage, Marnage Training Company. And so I thought, well, I'm going to be in a Thai prisoner dead here in a second. He's not the case at all. He asked what happened. I told him, and uh, you know, he went to the courts and they gave a statement. I have a fight. And he goes, Tommy goes, this is something a lot of people don't know. At that time, when I had the three, also Ernie Wagner got one from a guy in the Netherlands who also got it from Dang, and Ernie had imported it after I imported the three. So anyway, so. I'm at Dang's now, and Dang, that last uh, big female there, he goes, that big female was one I had around my neck in National Geographic, and mm. she means a lot to me. She, yeah, she said, he said, I would like to keep her as a pet. I said, well, I paid a lot of money. He goes, I know. So I get back, and I start duplicating the friends, but I got back, I think about it. So six or eight weeks later, I exported into the female back, mm. you know, the one he loved. Yeah. And in Bangkok, I have a picture of it office of 2012 but he turns around and a month later I get a shipment with two more albino burgundies in it about four feet long <laughs> so thank you for that head of his uh-huh. and to this day we remain well I just couldn't keep this thing yeah that yeah that that was good of you because I think half the people would have been like no I and that's, <laughs> yeah he was too nice to me there yeah Good karma. Yeah, they, yeah, exactly. Yeah, good karma. With well, I mean, more albino Burmese, and then Joe Lasso got involved with that. So they were sold to two doctors. So technically speaking, I had five Burmese total, although one bet went back to Bangkok because I shipped it back, mm-hmm. and Ernie Wagner had one. And that's where all of them came from, everyone. There were never wow. more than that. that I, just so you wow. know. And I don't wow. care what book you read or story you tell. What I just told you is the truth. That's the truth. Okay. That I was there. That's got to feel weird seeing an albino berm like now. No way. When I saw it, dude, I just, I was like, whoa, God. You know, I couldn't even believe it. I was so happy to see it. And nowadays, I don't even like morphs of anything. I just don't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My everything (laughs) Rob, it does. Well, the main thing, too, is learning just uh, just the more longer you live, the more you should learn about all this. Because I know for me, guys, every day is like just teaching me something else that I didn't even know about any of it. Uh, a yeah. master always, always remains the pupil. Always. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just when you think you haven't figured out. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Curveball. Yep. Yeah. Would that be, was the, I, I, I mean, I grew up in the seventies and eighties, but was the albino berm like the, that was the first big morph, right? It wasn't the albino ball python. Yeah, it was the, the berm, first right? Big, really was the corn snake. The albino corn snake, red by, by, by okay. Bechtel, who was a real close friend. He was a dermatologist, lived in Valdosta, Georgia. And okay. that was exciting, but that's a, was a $250 snake. Mm-hmm, the albino right. was $5,000. That made them a lot more exciting. Yeah. Because people, because of them, people begin to realize that they can make a living reading reptiles. Right. You can't do that $250 out by the court. 
but you can sell a twenty, fifty thousand dollar a five thousand dollar bottle or me's annually. Yeah. Or anybody else. Just like when I was back catching them rat snakes, man, selling the snake tutorial. One of my friends right. would pay it this hour in the, in the tobacco barns. This makes yeah. sense. <laughs> just, just, just that, but bigger. Yeah, <laughs> it goes back around. Wow. Pay to have fun and do all that. It's got to pay for itself. So, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about this quote. It really sticks with me. It's you. I hope I get this right, but it's it, you said that it's only when the keeper and the kept lose their fear of each other that the magical understanding begins. Can you can you That's elaborate right. on that? What I led you to this have, realization? As long as you're a little bit afraid of that animal, you're gonna like jump you around, and they're gonna pick up negative energy. And if it's a really dangerous animal, it'll make it more dangerous because it does not know what shit you're gonna do. For instance, we can go out with those big ass truck monitors we have. One of them's two years. Uh, it was in New Guinea two years ago. Scarface, he's, he's the biggest, longest one I have. He's eight feet seven about now. You put a raw chicken neck in your hand like that, hold it out. And he'll come over there, tongue the chicken neck, carefully pick it up and eat it. However, he's not afraid of me and I'm not afraid of him. I know he's not going to bite me. But you couldn't do that. Neither three of you. Because the minute you saw that march of once he targeted it, once he reaches for it like that, and you involuntarily do that, it's going to stop the prey from escaping. It's going to fight the shot out of you, and then be sorry and turn you loose, and then you're mm-hmm. going to tell everybody you accidentally bit you. No, it didn't. It bit you because it wanted to bite you because you, it's prey was escaping. You can't override that, 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 mm-hmm. that it, you can't. That, it, it, that's what it was, that's what it was born to do. But right. once that's understanding the behavior as opposed to understanding part of the behavior. But if you're a little bit afraid of anything, the animal's not going to react like you would. And he goes back to, all right, look at, look at this. There's a word, a German word called umbelt. Any of you know what umbelt means? U-M-B-E-L-T? Nope. No. Well, you should. You can Google that. It's a German <laughs> word. And what it means is seeing things or understanding the environment from the way that the animal sees it, to, to, to understand ethology. It's about ethology. In other words, a reptile does not look at reality like you do. Snakes and lizards, depends, all squamate reptiles depend almost entirely on their olfactory organs, the Jacobson's organs and everything else, as opposed to to uh, uh, eyes or even heat sensors for that matter. The tongue is for absolute proof and health. So, again, I got sidetracked trying to explain the, the, umbelt. 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 So, so for you to understand how that animal is going to act, you've got to understand how it's picking up stuff in the air with its tongue or what it's seeing or what infrared shapes it's seeing or something. And if you can't do that, it's very hard to know how to act or understand. And more importantly, why is it doing what it's doing? Because remember, how the animal acts should dictate how you handle it. And how you handle it dictates how the animal is going to act every time. Right. Yeah. Don't. But it's called, the Germans call it umbel. Very cool. That one up. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you mentioned it a couple times, like with your adventures and going and finding stuff. Um 
do you have a favorite find or your greatest reptile find? It comes like right to your head of uh, probably the thing that was to me back in the 1960s. There was a new boa described from the Tiburon Peninsula in Haiti. Remember at that time, that was my favorite stellar, favorite group of boas in the world. Right. It was named by Al Swartz, a Picrates striatus exagitus. The word exagitus means mystical, like in Bordeaux, because the center for Bordeaux, you call it voodoo, but it's called Bordeaux, it is in the uh, uh, Tiburon Peninsula. But the problem, Tiburon Peninsula in Haiti is that little long string looking thing that sits down. That's called the Shark Peninsula. It's very narrow, but it's very undeveloped compared to the rest of it. Extremely remote, and at the time I was there, there were no roads. Okay. Possible either. So you can go by boat or you could go by a charter plane. So we, I chartered a plane and stayed a week, and I went out to hunt this boa, and I actually caught seven of them, uh, between, uh, seven babies, rather, and one big adult female between Caparine and Jeremy. But that was a whole other story to take. And now you wouldn't even believe that story. <laughs> <laughs> one place I remember at night being in the, in, the, in the hut with these patients, and these people are, if anything, poorer than the people up there, they ain't got nothing. They're in a, a mud wall hut like Africa with a thatched hut and a fire. And they're eating corn that they grew. And we're out front, and they gave us some of the corn, and we had some rice we brought and gave it to them. And they cooked it for us, too. And I'm sitting with the head man and my interpreter. I was, nobody there spoke English, no one. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy's talking to me in Creole, and I didn't speak any at that time. And I asked uh, uh, Fritz, I said, what's he saying, Fritz? He says, he asked if you can hear the corn grow, too. I said, what? He said, he can hear the corn grow, and he knows it's going to be a good year. I said, he actually means he can hear the actual corn grow? And he goes, yes. I, tell him, I said, tell him I can't. I'm sorry, I wish I could. I'm not sure that's exactly what he meant, but that was so strange. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Wait, whatever. I, yeah, that's. I'm thankful to have lived the life I have. Yeah. To have learned what I've learned. What um, what do you think the future of the reptile hobby and herpetoculture is? Being someone who kind of set some of the foundation stones for it, you know, where do you think well, it's going? Where do I think it's going? I really don't yeah. know. I hope that it evolves for the better and with more responsibility and a lot of things. But it's hard to say. People are going to be people and do what they're going to do. You know, and the main thing I hope through it all is that I hope that at least some of us remain passionate about the animals themselves and drive it back because that's really my interest. But I, I just want what's best for horticulture in general. And, and also too, one thing I was going to say, two things before, yeah. in a way it's, it's kind of good because at the beginning we talked about how everybody hated reptiles like when I was young and even when y'all are young. But you know, the internet, social media that so many people keep them has actually improved that I think a little bit. And it's not mm-hmm. just, still as many people hate them, but not everybody wants to kill them anymore on site. And so right. that's a pretty good positive, I think. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, 100%. Yep. I kind of feel, I kind of feel like, I feel like some of the parts of that, like, I feel like the turtle hobby and the dart frog part of the hobby have all sort of like, 
pushed husbandry forward. And I see like the snakes section of the hobby, like slowly making that turn, but it's like, it's like turning a ship around, right? You're not going to just like turn the ship, you know, but well, you know why, you know, right? Why is that? It's just real easy to breach snakes. Almost. Yeah. Almost. yeah. And you don't have to be yeah. carrying, you can uh, you know, 50 ball pythons in a 12 by 12 bedroom in racks and they'll live a year. If you take really good care of them, don't get a pet. They'll live about 25 or 30 years. And you would too if somebody puts you in a bathroom and gave you enough food to keep you lean and where you wouldn't die. And you'd breed if they put a woman in there, but your quality of life would suck. But mm-hmm. that doesn't matter because they, the justification is that they're not sentient beings. They don't understand and they just don't care. And like ball pythons spend all the time underground and they just they, they yeah. do sometimes, but but everything should have choices. That's what yeah. we do. Yeah, I agree with that. That's why they do that. It's simply for for money more than anything else, because you can keep a lot of things in a small place and easy to breathe. You put dark frogs in there, you cut your, your – the dark frog people are mostly for passion, and a lot of wall pythons and other easy guys are for money. It's just yeah. 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 Yeah, it's it's like uh the snake nerds versus the or reptile nerds versus the non reptile nerd, you know, where they're just more looking at it as a side business type of deal. Yeah. 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 I'm I'm more of the nerd type. You know, yeah, the, the other wanna... thing that like the thing that I've learned is like when I was a kid we kept snakes in cages. My dad built these cages and you know you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And um uh, once I got in back into the hobby and you kept, you know, it was this whole rack thing. And I just thought, okay, I guess this is how we keep snakes now. And this is how we keep them efficiently. And for the longest time I did that. And then I started to keep them in cages and noticed that they actually did things like my diamond pythons, for example, like when that light comes on, they're out ready to bask every morning and that UV and in the, in the heat, you know, and, and they know like it's going to come on. How do they know it's going to come on? I don't know. I don't understand this. Like it just did, you know, um, I don't know. It, they, they, it, when uh, you they give all, them those things, they 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 sort of, uh, you know, they all of a sudden they have new behaviors that you that you. It's like sort of having this little window into nature that you can sort of like just, you know, wow! I have this brief opportunity to see this. You probably would never see this in the wild, only because mm-hmm. you, you're just not going to have that opportunity. And now all of a sudden you have that opportunity to watch them do what they do, and fascinating to me, you know. So. Uh, um anything else uh I get, keith and i got anything? questions keith anything like that i have no questions but i would like to take this opportunity to to thank tom for the message that he's putting out these days totally i think yeah. that his notoriety in the hobby he has a very large audience and he's taken advantage of that in a very positive way so much respect to you for that, Tom. I really appreciate your friendship and our sidebars. And um, I just think you're doing a great job and doing the animals a wonderful uh, justice. So appreciate you, man. Well, thank you. you know, I appreciate all of y'all, too, loving it like you do. And for me, it's just a passion, you know. Mm-hmm. If I just help change uh, the perception of the kind of an animal a reptile is, even just crocodilians which really is justifying from a scientific standpoint. I mean, mm-hmm. there are good arguments about these reptiles almost as good as what they are, that they should be reptiles. So it's true. 
So I just yeah. hope that that people see them and and we evolve in a more positive uh, trajectory in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, we appreciate you taking the time and time. Yeah, and dude, talking with is, us and. Thank y'all. It was fun, and then uh, I'll. Uh, I'm just. I actually just got your book on giant snakes, so I'm gonna pick through that, and I'll have questions later. So. Actually, you mentioned the. Uh, I mean, we uh, the eyelash moas, but. but mm-hmm. We explained the, the changing of uh, the, they're not boas anymore, but we included them anyway. Because oh, okay. actually, almost at the time we started the book, they were, and then they weren't. So <laughs> <laughs> that's just I, not fair. It's like they keep adding Haitian boas, or uh, they keep adding more boas that you didn't breed yet. It's like, well, that's just not fair. So you know, they need to stop. <laughs> I know. But. Um, Thanks very much. Um, do you have anything that you want to throw out? Any place where people can find you online, or um, can uh, if they want to contact you, or anything like that, you want to throw out there? Not good. They can reach me on social media. I mean, just on Facebook or something. If they want to sure. <laughs> they need you. They'll okay. find you. It's good enough for anybody. Again. <laughs> well, hundred percent. Thank you, Tom. It's been a joy, and you have a good one. Okay. How do I That's leave? Tom. Just put- we'll we'll kick you out. Don't worry. I got you. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah you're good yep <laughs> all uh, right well, that was fun i dude i love talking to the old school guys um it just feels weird when history. they're like it just feels weird when they're like and i did all my stuff between you know 50 and 70 i'm like not alive not alive some <laughs> stuff i did in the 80s getting closer <laughs> almost there there it is like yeah now always here so. I think this is a great series, Eric, because I think when um, you do all the reading and you don't actually talk to the person involved, you, you don't get a real perspective of who that person is. Right. Yeah. I think this history of her, you know, you're you're talking to Richard Ross and you're talking, you know, to all these these guys that you just kind of know the stories, but you, you don't really get to know that person. So I think this is a great series you guys are doing. And that's the thing, like, we 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 known of Tom Crutchfield since we started, and of course you hear everything that goes on and and all this other stuff. But all that stuff is either second or third hand at best. Right. Right. To actually sit down and talk with the guy, it's like everything just kind of comes around, and you can you kind of understand where he's coming from and and how he got into her the culture and what it was like. It's like almost wild West days and stuff back yeah. then. It was like, Jesus. So, and it kind of brings everything full circle. And it's weird because everybody will have an opinion on Tom's on Tom Crouchfield and various other people in her history, having never met the man. Yeah. And I, and I look at the message today. That's what's yeah. important yeah. to me is the message. today. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I really, um, I don't know if it's just aligning with like where I'm at as a keeper now, but like you're very Zen his, Eric Buddha thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know, man. I just, I'm just you know, field herping has ruined me. I say it all. The yeah. Time. I, I, I blame Rob Stone. He destroyed yeah. you. Rob Stone. Well, saw it's also, you with your, he saw you with your peak breeding season. Like I got to fix the shit out of this. I got to break you Australia <laughs> and you broke yeah. <laughs> like and it was done. Yeah. 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 I'm too I don't think I was ever that. Shakes though. my head. Yeah. I really, I, honestly, I don't. I, I don't think I was ever that. I, well, I'm it, more. The problem is, I just thought that you, that's sort of the road you have to go. Exactly. 
But, you, but you, I think also, Eric, when you go on these herb trips with kindred souls, right, you realize yeah. your thoughts are not the unusual ones. Only one? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not the only crazy guy here. But, but I was going to say that. Yeah, I was going to say that, like, when we go on these trips, right, you know, mm. we're we're spending uh, pretty much a week together, right? It gives us a lot of time to sort of, like, really get to know each other and talk about things and, like... All really the real truths that stuff happens deep at 3 a.m. Deep subjects yeah, and stuff, uh-huh. you know what I mean? <laughs> but, like, you know, I mean, gosh, Keith and Rob and, you know, well, everybody that have been on her trips with, Justin and, you know, Matt and I've, you, Owen, and, you know... I've said this just, numerous times, I was afraid of Keith McPeak. When we were going to Australia, because I had only had like two conversations with him and he was like a heavyweight. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say to Keith. And yeah, so I I feel like I'm super lucky that I have the quality over quantity type of people in my life. You know what I mean? But you're exactly correct. It was like you, I I fell into it and and then I think you did, but then you kind of went a different route of this is what you do when you want to start keeping reptiles. You buy this, you buy this, you buy this, you do this. Oh, you're going to breed now? Well, now you have to get – it's almost like now you, you must unlock the breeder package where you have to get a display, <laughs> yeah. you have to get this tablecloth, yeah. and you have to go and do this. And it's like it's like that's just the way it is. But then people now are starting to figure out that you can break that mold and not be considered – weird like you can still do this and enjoy your animals but you don't have to conform yourself to being that in that breeder of reptiles mold i mean yeah, Keith I, did it he ditched all his stuff and now he's got i mean do you your collection now keith is nowhere near the size that you had previously right right i just had a very eclectic collection right now and it is all over the place <laughs> yeah and i get to pick and choose what i want to work with for that year right. and i'm doing it for me and you know and that's it but, you know but then other people are like have you seen <laughs> keith pete's blackheads they're gorgeous i'm like yeah because keith took his time and he went i want blackheads i want those blackheads i don't want a blackhead i want those right. and did it and it's like yeah where are you more happier keith yeah. Where I mean, like, I I am way more happy now than I was. It was exciting times when I was chasing the morph and breeding the bloods and had the collection yeah. and knew those animals inside and out and everything else. But I didn't. That I, I lost myself. That's not what I'm in the animals for. I was in the animals for what I am right now. Like just laying on the floor looking in a Bowen's cage. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think, I think yeah, that's what you, Tom was trying to convey with a lot of his stuff, too, is, like, he's, like, he chased those morphs and stuff to an extreme. But now he's, like, now I just want to relax and, like, check out my crock monitors as they wander around my farm. Like, it's... Yeah. I, I can relate so much to that, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, the chase of the morph. I, I felt that, like, in order to be somebody in the hobby, I had to have, you know, the cutting edge stuff. And, you know, was, you know, the, like I had to have the newest morph of carpet python. And, you know, it never worked out to where I made money from. And I was terrible. Of course at it not. Because, I mean, like, by the, you know, I, I, I wasn't as one of those guys that was going to, like, for, you know, like power feed to get them to a certain age to be the first one to come to the, you know that whole game uh, I, I don't know i look at the reptile world and i kind of see like there's two different camps right there's like this camp of um people that look at it like well for instance i think we, we've been talking this behind the scenes but like um 
you know, I listen to other reptile podcasts and like when I listen to them talk, they never talk about like natural history or like uh, crazy observations that they've had. It's all about like, you know, um, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's almost like it's not even about the animal. Like the animal is a, is an extra thing. And I don't even yeah. know, like, even when I did it back in the day, right? I mean, we did it too, Owen. It's, it's not you know, like I mean, we yeah, haven't done I, it before, but like, and, I feel like when I look at that, I'm like, wow, it's, that's. But the what, problem is, is that you should be, you, you can and should and are able to wear many different hats. I love the yeah. natural history. And I love, like, my Timor pythons are one of the most gorgeous pythons on the planet that would say, dare I say it, in front of Keith McPeak, rival a bull and I. So, so how dare you? I'm just brave enough to say it. So, like, <laughs> Listen to me. You're going to get the slap. <laughs> <laughs> but but to have that, and then people be like, but imagine it is an exanic. I, I I don't want to. <laughs> like, pl- please don't. Please n- no. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's like you take away from it. Now, I'll admit there are some morphs that are absolutely gorgeous. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I yeah. don't care about certain things. Like it's, I don't know. You have to be <sighs> able to plug in. And what you were talking about with Tom and what we said with Tom is like you learn the most by going there. Even if you don't find the animal, plug in and learn from it. And, and yeah, me, that's me and Rob. More. Me and Rob were having this conversation about humidity, right? Mm. And humidity with carpet pythons in particular. And, you know, it, it, we, we really had, it was like a two hour conversation that we were having. But, um, you know, I was talking to him about how, like, before, I don't know if carpet pythons actually needed humidity to survive, but Mm -hmm. does it make them more comfortable or does it open up, uh, or not? I don't don't know. I'm going to, I'm probably going to be anthropomorphizing this, but, um, like the thinking of like during the winter right here on the East Coast, right? Because basically Trish. we're like Australia, but flipped, right? Think yeah, about it, yeah, right? Yeah. This is something that Rob said, and it was like, oh, blew my mind, right? <laughs> we're on the East Coast here. We're like the East Coast of Australia, but flipped around, right? Because yes. our diamond python territory would be up towards Maine, yes. <laughs> which is cold. <laughs> and then the the Cape York section would be down by florida right yes. so here on the mm-hmm. east coast we have all this humidity um in and it's way different than you know uh, what a brettles python would be so although you can keep them the same right you can keep them the same because i've been arguing this for a couple of years that not all carpets should be kept the same right because they're not from all the same environments right so if you get like yes you're going to have a Brettles python that's going to be able to get into these microhabitats where, you know, these, you know, inside trees and stuff like that to where mm-hmm. they're, they're going to get that humidity. But they also are exposed to that heat. Right. And that sun. <laughs> and, you know, it's just a different environment than cans. It's just right. different. Right. Well, Eric, right. look at the so difference the- from Brisbane to, to Darwin. Yeah. Like I had a 100%. totally different feel in Brisbane. Yeah. Than I did in in Darwin, hundred percent different. And 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 I believe that that's why jungles and coastals are so successful in our little neck of the woods, right? It's like this group of carpet pythons. Which are you have to six, push the most a little bit further, with, right, for bread life, because yeah. we would be right where Brisbane is at, 
Well, not exactly, but you know what I'm saying. Like we're sort of like mm, we're a little bit above the cold, like a little bit below the the cold, cold. We're part, exactly we where Brisbane cold. would be. Exactly, and I will <laughs> I will stand by that. Never 100%. say exactly. <laughs> Prove me wrong, damn it. Yeah. yeah. But I just think that like I I never even thought about that. Like the idea that why are jungle carpets and coastal carpets so popular here? In particular, yeah. right to where yeah. we have just like we just knock it out. We don't even think about it. We breed it without even thinking about it. Yeah, right? to be honest, and, I am not thinking about it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but with those, you know, I bet you, I bet you, Imbricata would be the same way. They're in a freaking desert. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So like Rob would probably Rob would be, be in a position yeah. where he would be able to breed those Imbricata without even thinking. About it. It's but then like so we have to do we have to do extra. For the bread lie and other spring breeders yeah. because we're not in that point. Yeah. I haven't I haven't like really thought this out a hundred percent, but I don't know. It just that that was see, that's the kind of conversations I'm talking about that like mm-hmm. I never would even think about that, you know, if I'm worried about, you know, well, what does an exanic zebra jag look like? You know? Looks like that. <laughs> no one cares next. It's <laughs> yeah. But what's really funny is that I saw somebody post something asking who in the U.S. was working on snow projects for carpet pythons. And it took me a minute because I'm like, it's been done. But then I'm sitting here and I'm like, it's been done. Has it been done? It's been done. Who the hell is working on that? Because yeah, it's, it's like, it, well, I know it's been done, but it used when we started, you had Paul, you had Ollie, you had, you know, and they were the ones who were working on the new stuff. And then you had their disciples in you know the US that was that would get their stuff or potentially work on it and you hear about this person that was gonna gonna cross these things and they were gonna be well, it's exciting. Right. You, you know? <laughs> but but that stuff has died out. And it's like, all right, well who is working on snows? Would Nick work I mean, on snows? Like I don't No. I, I have don't. I have a pair of double heads. You've had that pair of double heads for forever. Forever. Yeah, they're like. Why haven't I bred them? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if I have a desire to do it. I don't know. know. (laughs) Eric's like, I have a pair of albino bull and I. Why? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Am I ever going to breed them? Nah, they're just kind of over there. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, like I said in that uh, in that one behind the scene group that we have there is uh, like there's there's people like. I'm going to say Vin Russo and Nick mm. for that matter that love the snake and happen to breed morphs. Those are the people I respect. I don't respect the people that are breeding morphs, but could care less if it's on a ball python or a tick, a corn snake or what it is. They're just after that morph. I yeah. respect the people that love the snake and just happen to like to breed morphs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. have a problem yeah. with that. Yeah, me neither. And I respect yeah. that because I know all the work that goes into it. But at least that person still loves the snake for what the snake is and would right. keep the snake. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind of sad when you hear people talk about like, oh, I do ball pythons. And then they're like in the same breath, like, I hate these fucking snakes. It's like, that, what? That doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Wait, like, they didn't make any sense to me. Years ago, when some guy's like, you think I want to breed these bearded dragons? Fuck no, I want to do emerald tree bows, but there's no money in that. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. See, for for me, ball pythons have this like nostalgia that no other python has. And yeah, um, because when I was younger, to me, it was all you ever saw really was 
and again, I'm I'm a kid, so it's not like I really have this great perspective of everything or even understand all the di- I didn't even know what species there were except for that mm-hmm. that pythons and boas book by I think Strafford wrote it and like I studied that book like back of it's got a big blood python on the back I was like yeah. whoa I will never have one of these this is amazing you know yeah. um and uh uh, you know, it was it was all about like the Burmese pythons and 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 like I remember my dad took me to see this guy, one of his uh, police partners or something had this retic that he kept in a basement and you know I went to see it and I'm just like, holy shit, one of them big huge mainland retics and you're just like, holy crap, <laughs> this is a wild caught huge. one, so it's pissed yeah, off, oh yeah, God, yeah, it's ready to kill you, you know, one just eye. the whole deal, <laughs> and um, but you never saw a ball python and there was this pet yeah. shop that was around the corner from me and I would go there and they had this ball python. And to me, I'm like, Oh my God, this is perfect. Cause it's a python, but it's like small, oh. like, you know? And like, I don't know. I, I, I just remember staring at, I used to stare at that cage forever, forever. Just like staring at the snake with the green, it had the green mat and the, the uh, the tan blue inside crock bowl and the oh okay. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying like yeah the, yeah, that yeah, yeah. Setup. Uh-huh. Um, it was on astroturf it, yeah just... yeah 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 the astroturf green <laughs> reptile carpet or whatever it was called God. you know but yeah I don't know so they've they've always been that species that's been very nostalgic for me and I remember like when I was a kid uh, there was a, Matt would probably remember this place it was on um, Rising Sun Avenue and it was called I think it was called pets and things or something like that, but they got this. Yeah. I wanted a ball. I wanted a ball Python and I wanted, um, uh, uh, I, and my dad's like, okay, let's, let's go see what they got. So I call up the place and they said, yeah, yeah, we just got the shipment in. And I remember going there and they had this, I mean, it had to be maybe 10 by 10, this freaking wooden crate. Yes. I I only know because I've seen them. I've seen and them in just, Hamburg because they'll pop them open and be like, pick your tortoise. And I'm like, wait, please <laughs> yeah, stop. It's just filled with ball pythons. And I remember oh. my dad saying to me, he says, he's, I, you know, I, I see this gold one, right? And I'm like, I'm just infatuated with this gold one. Who knows? There's probably some kind of morph of some sort. Was a pat, that was the that. origin of the pastel. Yeah. But it wasn't like that. There was like darker ones and there was we gold ones. We could, have, we could have the facility now if you <laughs> yeah. the right goddamn ball python. So I'm picking this one up and I'm like, I'm telling the guy, the guy in the pet shop, I'm like, yeah, this is the one I want. This is the one I want. My dad's like, no, 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 no. You want this one. And I'm like, no, I don't, dad. He's like, promise you, you want Boy, this one. shut up. <laughs> so I go, okay. And I take it. Well, here there was two of them entwined together in a ball. <laughs> so I got two ball pythons. For, you know. <laughs> this is what they call a buy one, so get I, one free. So, so, okay. so Yeah, so I come okay. out of the reptile shop and he's like, go ahead, open the bag. And I open the bag. He's like, there's two of them in there. He's like, you got two now. And I'm like, woohoo. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I don't know. So it's it, like those memories I have of me and my dad in those days are, you know, it's just very nostalgic for me for, but I feel like, you know, and that's, for ball pythons. And I feel like that's that would be a fun thing to do. And that's the nostalgia of it. It's like, why do I still have Cali Kings? Is because that was my first snake, you yeah. know, and that was my first intro. And, and I, I will continue to breed and keep Cali Kings. Am I going to spend a ridiculous amount of money on Joker morph? So, no, I don't care. I just want yeah. the Cali King. 
So yeah, like I just want a normal ball python, just a normal right. one, you know. And like love one day I'll one. have one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They give you like five dollars for cobra food, maybe. <laughs> yeah. You have been I got chosen. Twenty-five bucks. You will Anybody live. Have one? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I just feel bad for that species in particular because at the same time they're 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 so popular and and you know. Keith, and at the same time, they're so hated. It's like crazy. Right. Do you think the ball python market may be crashing? Oh, geez, I have no idea. Do you think about it? <laughs> Keith, I, I don't think I that could ever go away. Spot here, tell me yes or no. <laughs> like, I think, Why, what do you mean? I, I think <laughs> the prices could come down for a while, for sure, and maybe weed out a lot of the. Um, you know, people that aren't really in it for the long haul, but yeah, I, I I don't know. It. I was talking to Melissa yesterday about the the what was it forty five thousand? Like how how many ball pythons are on morph market again? Yeah. Was that Eric? Oh, like the forty five thousand or whatever? Like, I think it was something like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I'm like that is a ridiculous number in my mind. The, like the I, I kept trying to wrap my head around it. The problem, not the problem, but maybe it is a problem with ball pythons is is that they're so mainstream that, like, somebody that's going to go buy a Coke at the store will buy a ball python, too. You know what I mean? It, you don't have yeah. to be a reptile person. So the market is huge. You know yeah, what I mean? True. So those 45,000 are really well, it, nothing in the States. And and I like what Tom said about that, too, is, like, we asked him about um, disappearing things from the from uh herpticulture it's like it, it depends on the animals so like where there seems to be a lot of ball pythons for sale it seems like there's an over like there's a ton of ball python breeders and 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 there's a ton of people producing a ton of animals even though these animals have small clutches but i almost feel like the next thing after that would be that there's probably going to be soon a ton of retics available forty-six thousand. jesus christ so yeah, and I know we've talked about it with with this kind of recession thing, and depending on how people are going to keep certain animals, um, or the amount of animals that they have, or it's almost like it's going to be harder for people to sell certain things. Are we going to see more ball pythons for sale, or more animals for sale, for that matter? And also, it almost seems like with the amount of animal amount of eggs that a retic can lay, like how many retics do we have to have run around this country that need homes? Mm. Yeah, that's I don't know. yeah. I don't know. It almost seems like part of it is we're trying very hard to show ourselves as responsible keepers and breeders of reptiles. On one hand, and the other hand, we're like, let's produce fifty thousand of something well, and see. Oh, and this is this is exactly why I haven't produced Bolins yet. I just don't want too many of them in the market. You're right. That's <laughs> good like, play, no, Keith. No, good play. no. <laughs> you two can cuddle, but I'm holding your tails. Like it's. <laughs> I do want to. I do. I do want to get your thoughts on this, and then we could probably uh, finish out. But like, um, so Keith, I watched this video. Um, and was of the timber rattlesnake, right? And this guy, oh my god, I'll have to send you the link to his his page because he he does all this natural history. Did I talk to you about this? No, I think no. I talked to you, Owen, but not uh, you. Yeah, okay. I know you get us confused. So, we both have the you know, yeah, 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 yeah. I gotta grow a beard. <laughs> I have the, the only way you can tell us apart. If I ever shave all of this, he's not gonna know which one of us which. Yeah. So yeah, right. So um this um this the the timber rattlesnakes head back up to the uh, to the to their um, 
Hibernaculums, right? Um, nacula. Oh, sorry. Nacula. Uh, hibernacula. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they they head back up there, and one of the the observations that this guy noticed was that the females would come out and bask belly up in the UV um, before they would go into hibernation. And I was thinking about that, and I'm thinking like, huh. I know you guys have done UV and all that. You've tried those things. And like, I know that you were trying to mimic the clouds as the, you know, so giving it to a certain amount a day. But like, is there, do you think that like, so they're going up, this is October where he's looking at it, right? So, and this was in New York, right? So mm. getting cold. It's not cold, but it's cold at night, right? At this point. Um, do you think that like they're going in, um, possibly, you know, they could be pregnant at that point and then come out in the springtime and, and, and have their babies. Or do you think that, have you ever tried like doing that before the breeding season would start? Like say in the summertime where you would allow the female to sort of bask in UV? Like when did you give the UV? Was it during the breeding season or all the time? Yeah, they have UV all the time. All the time. But, okay. Okay. Well, that's not true. So, so what I do is right now is I have LED lights in the cage. That mm-hmm. are their okay. ambient lighting. And then I have their basking spots, which is a, a UVB bulb. I have that come on a timer throughout the day. And I give them an hour duration at a time and then maybe two hours off, then an hour and a half on, then two hours off. So throughout the day, that UV is coming on and off, kind of replicating more of... Because what snake's going to stand their basking all day long in the wild, right? It's not going to expose itself and be out on that ledge for, you know, 12 hours a day. So that's what I've been generally doing to them. Um, And I mean, right now I'm just trying to keep everybody healthy, let them settle into the routine I've given them. I I feel like I've gotten to the spot where I have the coolness that I need as my background, but I have the basking that they need to, to stay above that. And, I'm going with the flow now, Eric. <laughs> you know? yeah, right. Jesus take the wheel type of body. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, you know, I don't think I would have gotten to the understanding I have on the species right now and maintaining it the way I'm maintaining it if I didn't go through all the stuff I was going through and experiment with these low nighttime temps and, you know, the the dark, bigger darkness period and all these other things, I think I've finally right. settled into the balance that in my head is what it's going to take to get them there. So now it's for them to cycle into what I've given them. And I'm not changing anything at this point. I feel like all those trials got me to where I am now. And, mm-hmm. and now I'm letting them do their thing. You know do what I mean? Thing. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. That species just fascinates me. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Oh, no, it started. Now Eric's going to get rid of anything. Everything gets <laughs> no. no, no, no. He's hit that I could be fascinated by a species and not keep it. I can't right. breathe. It's 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 spinning spinning wheels until... How the hell am I going to do it? I wish we were closer and you could just come and, and go in the basement and sit and watch them Observe. for a while. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So, have you sorry. have you noticed any other like observations that have uh, about them in particular that have kind of like? Well, this is the or... first year. This is the first year where I've just kept the pair together, uh-huh. and and at the um, 
right times they've started breeding on their own. Got somebody here for you. Ah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> you don't, baby. <laughs> Keith, you have a weird chicken. <laughs> <laughs> he has a mohawk. <laughs> I love him. He's a gorgeous he's so bird. Cool. He is. Yeah. He's really cool. And, and you know, the best part is it is that um, Keith has to deal with all the wonderful things of that macaws and cockatoos bring, like screaming at the top of their lungs. Like, yeah, that's... you know what's really cool with this thing, though, uh, Owen, is yeah. that. They they don't have any of those parrot vocalizations. They yes. they have they have like a click and a whistle that they do, and it's not uh-huh. a, like it's not obnoxious at all. And okay. he only yeah. does it if he wants a little attention. Like it's not just a concept like I'm a caught, you yeah. know. Yeah, he, right. He does it right. when when he wants to be with his flock. Otherwise, cool. he's like this. He's like this all the time. <laughs> That's cool. There's, Wow. Thanks, T. (laughs) (laughs) Tom's not on there anymore. (laughs) Anyway, so this is the first year that I've seen the pair stimulated on their own for the male to court aggressively and copulate with the female and the female not bouncing and flicking and trying to get the male off of her. Like, So what I'm saying is in the past I've had to like rotate my males or... You know, mm-hmm. do something extravagant to to initiate that courtship. Where where this year they they've come into a cycle on their own where there was some heavy breeding for like two weeks. I always right. saw the male all over her, and that's from just leaving them together. Like Tom saying, year round, she came into whatever cycle turned that male on. A lot of people are saying it's the storm that went through, but. I, I'm seeing it every day. I, I know what the difference was. You know, there was a right. difference there where that female was giving him the cues and he was all over it and she was receptive to it. So that's the mm-hmm. first time I have seen that um, this year. In the, I've been trying since 2013. So it's an advanced wow. thing. Yeah. Okay. So the, 2013 Unless is when you first just, tried to breed them? Is that yeah. when it was? It's yeah, it's none I, of the thing. It's none of the crap of putting them together. It's because he got a tattoo. Okay, it's the only reason. <laughs> yeah, if yeah, he yeah. hadn't done That's it, awesome. they would have been staring at each other like they do every year. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. I'm getting a Sanzinia here on the 11th of February, <laughs> and then a blood python's going here. So I'm going to have the bowl and blood and Sanzinia. Just keep nice. getting all the ones until they start breeding. It's like, hey, she look, there's you. <laughs> 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 Yeah, but so. didn't you you bred Sanzinia? I think yeah. you were talking to yeah yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. You're sort of I, who who were I think while I was listening to the uh, the 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 Boa 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 podcast and yeah. Well, Tracy sort of, like, Bar- like I say, Tracy. That. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tracy Barker and Eugene Bissett both said I was the first private person to breed him. I don't know if that's true or not. It was coming from a good source, so I. I just kind of like pin that badge on every once in a while. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Nice. <laughs> I mean, Very Eugene cool. literally got on the floor at, at, at Daytona when I brought, because uh, you didn't have the internet or nothing then, right? So I just put them all in this clear big deli cup, and I walked up to Eugene Bissett, and I handed him the deli cup, and he looked down at it. He looked up at me. He handed it back to me. He got on the floor, and he started bowing. <laughs> <laughs> And if you know Eugene Bissett, like I literally like, yeah. didn't know what to do. 
That's he's like, well, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 the Sanzini are in that book. The um, uh, uh, what the hell? The one we were looking. The the the, the one that we we're talking the trees? about. The, yeah, they talk yeah. about Sanzini yeah. and stuff like that in there. So. Yeah, that's a really know. good book. That's a really cool. Book. Oh, Sanzinia now for you, Owen. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> Sanzinia had been in my head since I got those ugly. Such brown a unique looking species, you know. Yeah, that guy. So. Yeah, yeah. I like the ground boas. I like the Madagascar ground boas. That's yeah. the ones why? I like. Because they're cool. Why? I don't know. <laughs> why do Why do we like what we like? Who knows? Listen, I don't know. You know, I'm sitting here and I'm like Argentines, and then. God help me if Keith McPeak ever breeds his uh, Hog Island boas. Listen, then, oh, and yeah. right now my Argentine is like this right now. Good, oh. good. Yeah. <laughs> I keep, Excellent. I keep trying to get them, and things keep happening. <laughs> yeah, well, if I do good, what uh, are you getting rid of coastal carpets now? They're going on. No, no, no. So never. you can make room for. I'll never get rid of coastals. Jungles out. But out. it's like. Listen, you know, it. I was thinking about that again today. It's like if I have captive born and bred gold faced white lips that need cages, I'm sorry, Darwin Carpets. Like, get out. So, <laughs> Darwin yeah. Carpets, I'll take. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it would be sending that caramel head albino right back to you. <laughs> like, that one I don't want. <laughs> yeah, that, <I> mean, <laughs> that, that, well, that You can keep that one, sell it, whatever you want to do. I don't, yeah, I don't, it, I don't it's. But again, like we talked about it, I know enough people now that are doing carpet pythons and other things that potentially it would just be a lot more breed loans. Like it would just, yeah. I'll figure it out. That's future Owen's problem. Yeah, future Owen's problem. Yep. All right. Very good. Cool. Thanks, Keith, for uh, hooking yeah, this up. For, for yeah, for chaperoning us. Yeah. Thank you for letting me sit in. Yeah. yeah. Who, who <laughs> should we get next? Who should be the next herp history guy? Yeah, Keith, who's next? We should probably circle back with Eugene, no? You know, that would be even talking yeah, about him since that would be fun. You, we we haven't talked from power. Greg, oh, yeah. we, I don't think we've ever actually spoken with Greg. Bob Applegate, Captain yeah, Love, that'd be yeah, fun. That'd be a good one. Yeah, I don't know. I I rely on Keith, Keith and Rob to tell me. Uh, yeah, Keith and Rob. I mean, I know the names, but yeah. Dick Bartlett. Dick Listen, they—they're yeah. the grinders. We're just the monkeys. All right, you know. <laughs> to be honest. Oh, very good. All right. Well, much appreciated. And uh, why don't you throw your info out there, Keith, if you want yes, to? Yes, you're right here. Uh, <laughs> just uh, if you want to chat, just find me on Facebook. Um, just friend request me or send me a private message. And uh, yeah, man, always ready to talk snakes. All right. And for us, uh, please go check out all the shows on the network. There are many. Um, you can also follow NPR Network on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, NPR Network for everything that you need. There's also the Teespring store uh, where you can get uh, NPR, uh, Carpet Fest, Carpets and Coffee, and all the shows on the network's gear, magnets, stickers, everything there. Also, go check out Cold-Blooded Caffeine Co., uh, for the two things you absolutely love, which are reptiles and coffee. There's also the uh, Marley Python Radio Blend. One dollar of every bag sold is donated to wildlife conservation in coffee-producing countries. Um, they have amazing coffee. I, Eric and I drink it pretty much exclusively at this point. Um, so that's cold-blooded caffeine. 
there's the referral link, and please use code MPR to get a 10% discount off your order. That's code M-P-R. Um, there's also, if you have any questions, show suggestions, or anything you want to see, please in- email us at info at MarleyPythonRadio.com. Um, also, go join the Patreon to get updated on all the Patreon streams and when we have uh, those live shows. Um, also, you can go and like NPR on YouTube, and you'll be alerted to when we have new episodes as well as live streams. That's all we have for you guys tonight, so we'll say thank you all for listening, and tune in next week for some more Marley Python Radio. Good night. Good night.